everybody. This is Peter Burson, and this is our podcast or podcast or some kind of cast. Anyway, welcome to another edition of Money Talks and Bullshit Walks, the history of Philadelphia from 1980 to present. Green to Kenny. We here at uh, our undisclosed location, podcast location, like to call it MTBW. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it, Joe? You bet. Well, okay. So with me is Joe Willard. And Joe, uh, in the old song, is text just as good as he can walk, um, if you remember Archie Bell and the Drells. Joe also has a, a terrific knack of calling people and getting them to answer their phone calls or emails. And a lost, a lost art. Anyway, uh, last time we, we spoke about what we dubbed the class of 91, and that was... Jim Kenny, uh, Bob Brady, and we also introduced the 1991 mayoral election. Uh, so before we get started with our inching across the 90s, I have several updates for you, Joe, before we're joined by our guest, Niall Shore. First, this will confirm, Joe, that we have lost contact with MTBW's esteemed legal mouthpiece, Bombastic Bushkin. Oh, that's uh, a tragedy, a true tragedy. We posted lost and found posters up and down Alfred's Alley because that's all our budget could afford in magic markers and cardboard. But if someone does find Bob Bastet Bushkin, uh, we will uh, reward them with either a large coffee from either Wawa or the Sunoco, both of which are located on Stenton Avenue. But that said, we have etched into our minds Bushkin's words to live by. We are not historians. We're not journalists. Although we've had current and former journalists on MTBW, we deal in urban legends. And if the truth gets out, so be it. Uh, you can just view us as a group of friends sitting around some sort of flipping Zoom, talking trash about the city that loves you back. The land of the giants is former Inquirer columnist, Steve Lopez wrote on more than one occasion. That's that's what I have to say about Bushkin's emphasis. But Joe, I, I do want to note a couple, one other thing or two other things. I noticed that Ronald Rubin died recently, and I'm not sure the podsters know who he was. You may recall when we did an earlier podcast, we talked about Willard Rouse and the building of Liberty Place 1 and 2 and breaking the handshake agreement amongst various high potentates that no building would be built higher than Billy Penn's hat on top of City Hall and the shakedown by councilman, I think it was Tyune and the FBI's U.S. Attorney's Office prosecution. If you don't remember that show, just go back and listen to it. It's in our vast vault of podcasts. Anyway, Ruben was the man who contributed the next iconic building to our Skyline, which was the Mellon Building at 18th and Market. And among other things, Ruben did, or his company, Priot, Pennsylvania Real Estate Investment Trust, uh, he saved uh, the PFF, PSF his sign, that huge sign that was located on the PSF building. Uh, I think that's at 12th and Market. Uh, yeah. And anyway, the PSF building got converted uh, into Lowe's Hotel at 12th and Market. That was a pretty big deal, especially uh, if you ask me, the sign. Well, maybe not him, but Priya also say he's, 
He's, they saved the grand old hotel on South Broad Street, which was the Bellevue, and it's still the Bellevue. And a lot of people say that um, saving the Bellevue helped start the Avenue of the Arts on South Broad Street. In the parlance, Reuben was a player. He grew up here. He knew what Philly looked like in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Uh, and his company was invaluable in helping to turn the city uh, to look like a city, uh, at least downtown-wise. And in the words of the great Sixers TV play-by-play -play man, he helped turn garbage into gold. Another big-time player in the legal community was Richard Sprague, Dick Sprague. Uh, he was Arl Inspector's chief assistant in the investigation of President Kennedy's assassination. And Sprague was one of the people who came up with the single bullet theory. Joe, you, do you remember that? I remember the single bullet theory, but I didn't know Sprague got the... Um, Sprague inspector. the originator. You never wanted to get a memo from Sprague that said, see me, R-A-S. That was always, always a bad thing. So when Sprague left the office, uh, he went into private practice. And basically, Sprague was hired by everybody who was in a tight jam, either criminally or civilly. And he did one huge case, and then we'll leave it alone, called the Lopinson trial. Uh, that involved a, a very sensational murder and all sorts of entanglements that kept the papers in business with their headlines. But anyway, Joe, I think it's best that we get to the, our guest here on the podcast. So take it away, our introductions and we'll go from there. Thank you. And I'd like to introduce everybody to Niall Shore, longtime friend, uh, advocate, and ally on many of the uh, advocates here in Philadelphia back in the good old days of the 80s and 90s and in the 2000 aughts for a long time. Uh, Niles, thank you for coming on. Welcome aboard. My pleasure. Before we go one step further, uh -oh. while we're talking about great Philadelphians, you mentioned Ron Rubin. I'm going to bring up the name Roy Rubin. <laughs> how, about, how, about, how about poor Roy Rubin? You know, uh, you got to remember them all from beginning to end. That's true. Um, Were they brothers? Excuse me? Were they brothers? Uh, I, I don't know, but uh, they're both names that will live long in Philadelphia history. So true. So true. Boy, you had to bring that one up. So what was that record? It, it finally nine and, record nine and, the most nine and losses, 73, right? right? Yep, he was, he was Mr. 9 and 73. And he got the job because he had been the coach at Long Island University. Basketball powerhouse, yeah. It, it truly was. They had a six foot four center named, I think it was Albie Grant, who then went on to play pro ball a little bit. But this guy could jump. I, I actually had the pleasure of meeting him once. And he loved to put, have people put quarters on the top of the backboard and jump up and grab them off. Wow, Quite that, a sight to see. That's a leap. That's a leap. That's a leap. <laughs> that's a high leap. Amen. Hey, Roy, Roy Rubin was the original tanker. He just didn't know he was tanking. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, it's uh, important to know when you're in over your head, but most of us never do. Oh, they're drowning. They're yeah. drowning. <laughs> A la Gabe Kapler. Huh. Oh, that's not, come hey, uh, come, let's not go there. That that hurt. You know, that was losing that was two painful. out of three to him. Come on now. <laughs> yeah, that was painful. That was painful too. So Niles and I met way back in the glory days of the '80s when there was a lot of advocacy work and a lot of activity focused on Harrisburg and and in Philadelphia. 
Niles, I think it was you were at Community Legal Services. Yes. Um, can you tell us uh, how did you get to CLS and uh, what type, what what department were you working in there? Okay, um, we got to do a little bit of history to put all of this in context. I finished law school in 1975. It was the beginning of the movement of poverty law, public interest law, legal services. I was a child of the 60s and I actually believed all that stuff. You know, I believed in social justice and, you know, goodness and wonderfulness. And I knew that the lawyer I wanted to be was not, you know, a corporate lawyer. You know, mm -hmm. I, I knew I wanted to be a, a legal services lawyer, um, primarily because I never had enough certainty that I would not need the services of people like me. So I wanted to make sure that when the time came, things were in place to benefit me. So I started my legal services career in the town of Tonkanic, Pennsylvania. Tonkanic? Oh, sure, I know Tonkanic. For those of you who don't know where it is, which is almost all of you listening to this, <laughs> it sure. is a, a triangle of Wilkes-Barre, Scranton, and then Tonkanic is the top. Mm -hmm. It is the county seat of Wyoming County, Pennsylvania, and it is most known for being right next door to the Shorman toilet paper plant of Mishapin, Pennsylvania, or Mahopany. I always get those two confused. Yeah, I think it's Mahopany, um, yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and I happened to be there during the bicentennial 1976, and one of the great moments of my life, Mr. Whipple, came to the Tonkanic Fairgrounds and put on a show for us. Yeah, was I it remember Arnold, Arnold the bird with him? No, Mr. Whipple, you Mr. got the wrong Whipple, Mr. Joe. Mr. Whipple is Charmin Toilet Paper. Oh, oh, my bad. I thought yeah. he was the guy in Green Acres. No, no, no that's no. somebody else. So let, let's move this along, otherwise we'll be here for the rest of our lives. I worked my way through Pennsylvania, got to Bloomsburg, Pennsylvania, met my wonderful wife and there we then moved to georgia for a couple of years 1980 ronald reagan got elected and it was his promise to destroy legal services mm -hmm. so we decided two things one that if legal services was going to go under we wanted to come back to pennsylvania and sort of go down with the ship among friends, and two, that my wife might need to go to law school. She was a, a, an extraordinary paralegal at the time, but given what the future might have looked like, we thought we needed to, she wanted to think about law school. So we came back and went to Clearfield, Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. Clearfield, Pennsylvania is a town, oh, about 40 miles or so west of Penn State. Wonderful experience, small town, but good, decent people, you know, had good opportunities. Uh, one, one of the things I'm happiest about is that in the year of 1981, maybe, I had welfare law class action in each of the three districts of the federal courts of Pennsylvania, something to do. But let us roll it forward. So we, we moved to, Penn, to, to Philadelphia. I'm looking around for work. I volunteer at CLS. And eventually CLS gets a grant to create what was known as the Elderly Law Project. And I got hired to be the first attorney to oversee that project. And that is where I met you, Joe, when you were at Action Alliance. 
That's right. Now, yeah. what year did, did you start? I started. What year did you start at Action Alliance? 1984. Okay. Um, yeah, 1984, yeah. I think my, I started at CLS maybe in 82. I don't even remember. 82 or 83. It's been a while ago. So that's, that's how I got there. I had never done much with the legislature, but one of the conditions of the grant was that I would develop an advocacy program to benefit senior citizens primarily involving the state legislature. Hmm. Now you need to understand a little bit of something about Pennsylvania and its legislature in the 70s. And this will surprise all of you. In the 70s, Pennsylvania was one of the most progressive states in America. That is a surprise. Uh, no, it's not. My father was the chairman of the Pennsylvania House Judiciary Committee. What was his name? Norman Burson. Yes. Okay. Well, um, then, when, then when I say the names Kay Leroy Irvis and, and Alex Kukovich and Dave Richardson, you'll know who I'm talking about. I know exactly who you're speaking about. Yeah, it, it was an amazing time. You know, the Pennsylvania Constitution is one of the few in America that gives people the right to clean air and clean water. It's I one of the few that has an equal rights amendment that I think got put in in 1972. It's a remarkable document, but even more so, the people who were working, including Pete's father, really did astounding things back in those days. Uh, it, it was a time when Pennsylvania really was a leader. You know, Kay Leroy Irvis was the first African-American Speaker of the House since Reconstruction. You know, nearly 100 years it took to go from an African-American Speaker of the House to, you know, to Leroy Irvis. He got um, sworn in as Speaker uh, 1978, I think, 77, 78, in that vicinity. Uh, and Reconstruction ended in 1878. So, you know, mm -hmm. so, so there we were. That's when I started to work with Action Alliance, and we worked on a number of issues. And it, it was at a time when, for instance, the, the deinstitutionalization of mental health facilities was going hot and heavy. You know, it had started earlier, but it, you know, it was still going strong. And so one of the big issues that we dealt with was personal care boarding homes. And there was, you know, Philadelphia has always been known for its great advocacy organizations. And I was fortunate to work with a number of them. And one of them was the boarding home advocacy team, which I'm guessing no longer exists. Right. BAT, right? I remember BAT. BAT, B-H-A-T. Um, and that was their issue. So I, we worked with them. And, you know, serendipity is a delightful and wonderful thing. But mm -hmm. BAT was located in the district of the then Speaker of the House, Bob O'Donnell. And Bob O'Donnell was a wonderful guy. He had his issues with the legislature. They ultimately deposed him. But he was, you know, a good, decent, brilliant man who wanted to do good things. And one of the good things he wanted to do was to help Bat get things straightened out in the world of boarding homes. Um, and and he did. You know, he, he was a great champion. And, you know, so the one of the early lessons I learned as an advocate was you got to find the good guys in the state legislature. Mm -hmm. Not many of them. Excuse me? There were not many of them. Well, we, we, there were not, but they were, you know, there were some of them. And what made it easier was, you know, it's, it's easy to get stuff done when you only have a few people to work with. You, I'm sure Pete, you've heard the name Alan Kukovich. Sure. You know, he, he was... Uh, voted one of the smartest members of the Pennsylvania legislature. Now, typically, that would not be such a great compliment. Yeah, right. But in his case, it actually 
he really was a, a bright guy, decent guy, in the House from Western PA, Westmoreland County, and eventually made it to the Pennsylvania Senate, where I was working. Uh, so you were, uh, Joe tells me you were working for um, Senator Williams, Hardy Williams, who is the father of Tony Williams, no? Yes, but you jumped over the, the, the my first uh, em employer, if you will, and a name that I hope lives on in Philadelphia history loudly and proudly, which is Senator Roxanne Jones. Uh, mm -hmm. Senator Jones was as close to a saint as I have ever met on this planet. She, you know, if, if you don't know who she is, number one, shame on you to all of you listeners out there. Number two, go Google her. Number three, go read a book called Passion for Equality, written by a guy named George Wiley. Now, if you ever listen to MSNBC or are following the New York City mayor's race, George Wiley's daughter is Maya Wiley. George Wiley was a professor of chemistry at Cornell, I believe. I no longer remember, but he got involved with the National Welfare Rights Movement, became executor executive director of the National Welfare Rights Organization. You know, and th those were days when that you know, was it still a viable advocacy route? People cared about poor people and what was going to happen to them. And, you know, it looks like we're back there again, but it's been a while in between. But in any case, uh, Roxanne Jones originally was with Philadelphia Welfare Rights Organization and then created her own nonprofit called Philadelphia Citizens in Action. And a name you may not remember, and I'm going to, Milton Street. Oh, we've already talked about John and Milton. Uh, John was way closer to uh, Roxanne's world uh, in terms of his activism. Milton, in the end, was a hot dog vendor. Well, well, let, let me tell you my slight connection to Milton Street and Roxanne Jones's. She, when he switched to Republican, which I guess was early 80s, maybe? Yeah, I think that's right. She was recruited to run against him. And that, that was her entree into elected politics. She, she had been uh, you know, a welfare mother, as we used to call them, head of Philadelphia Citizens in Action, gets recruited to run against Milton Street and beats his pants off. A number of years later, I went to work for her in 1989. I think it was 92, maybe. Milton Street came to Harrisburg on a non-session day. And, and it, the significance of it being a non-session day is the senators aren't there. They're back, you know, at their districts working there. So Milton well, Street came. Well, well, we'll accept that for now. Well, some of them, you know. There, there were some wonderful, in, in important In theory, people. they were there. Yeah, but Milton Street came because he decided he was going to run against Senator Jones in the primary. And he actually came to offer the existing staff, including me, jobs for when he won. Now, you know, for those of you who know the word chutzpah, that's about as much chutzpah as you can get. Mm -hmm. He, of course, lost again. But I, I got to Harrisburg because one day I got a call from her office asking me, would I be interested in being her legislative aide? Uh, her aide is a guy named, was a guy named David Gates, a, a name you should know, one of the oh. leading disability rights lawyers Absolutely. in Pennsylvania. I didn't uh, know he worked for her, though. Huh. Well, you know, we had an interesting connection. I was working in Philadelphia. Dave was at the Pennsylvania Health Law Project in the Bucks County office. He got a call uh, to go work for Roxanne Jones because her first legislative aide, a woman named Kathy Yorkovitz, um, sure. mm -hmm. 
was moving on to work at the Department of Public Welfare. No, 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 she wasn't. I forget where she went. She but ended in any up case, there. Yeah, she ended up. ended up there, and I ended up working for her there. So, so Dave went to work for Senator Jones. I went to work at the Health Law Project. Dave is, you know, one of the great health lawyers in, in America. He got a job in Washington, D.C. So there was now a, an opening working for Senator Jones, and, and that's how I got to go there. What were some of the uh, first issues you ended up working on? Well, this was November of 89. I'm going to roll forward just a little bit and try to remind people of what the world looked like in 1990 and 1991. Mm -hmm. You know, again, getting back to the notion of serendipity, John, Hain John Hines, the, uh, the heir of the ketchup family, still the best ketchup in America. Those Hunts people and those others, you know, uh -uh. They can't do it. Heinz yeah. is the ketchup that you got to go with if you're eating a burger or pretty much anything else. <laughs> but uh, I just it with our potato chips. It, you know, it's good on anything. I know people who eat it on cottage cheese. It is just Ooh. the best. <laughs> John Hines had been the chair of the Senate Select Committee on Aging. So I knew of him, you know, while I was working at CLS uh, and knew of his history. You may not remember, but he tragically died in a helicopter crash in Montgomery yeah. County in 1991. Right. America would not be what it turned out to be had that not happened. The reason I say that is there was now an open seat in the US Senate representing Pennsylvania. The governor at the time was Bob Casey Sr. And he picked a guy named Harris Wofford to replace John Hines. Now I did listen to some of your earlier podcasts and I heard you bring up the name of Dick Thornburg. Yeah. Thornburg, as we all know, had been the governor of Pennsylvania two terms. Now a little bit, little bit of history. Pennsylvania up until 1970, I believe, Governors could only serve one term. That changed in the Constitution of 1968. So the first governor who served two terms was Milton Schack. The second governor who served two terms was Dick Thornburg. Thornburg then went on to be Attorney General, I guess, for George H.W. Bush? I think that's right. They were so, cut from the same bolt of cloth anyway. Yeah, exactly. So the, the Republicans thought Dick Thornburg, former governor you know, one twice convincingly attorney general, oh boy, Harris Wofford, never been elected to anything. Good night, nurse, we're gonna take this one on. And then the, the name James Carville enters mm -hmm. the scene. James Carville became Harris Wofford's campaign manager. And they, as my wife likes to use the word, glommed onto the issue of healthcare. Uh, so it was decided that the US Senate campaign in, in 90, I guess 92 or 91, I don't remember anymore, when the election was. Wofford got appointed and then there was an election shortly thereafter to fill out the remainder of the term. And healthcare was the issue. So starting in 1991, you know, that became the national big issue. Of course, that gave rise to Bill Clinton and gave rise, you know, we'll talk about the mom bill in just a moment. Uh, in Pennsylvania, we tried to get a universal healthcare bill that's right. Wasn't that Casey who did that? That was Casey who did it. Uh, one of the leading advocates for it is a woman named Ann Tora Grossa that you may know, uh, who, who started the Pennsylvania Health Law Project. Still around, I think, doing health law yeah, things. Yeah, she's, she's working for the um, Independence uh, Foundation. Okay. 
So a, a bill was drafted for universal health care, did not succeed, but the CHIP program was created as the compromise. Pennsylvania was the first state, if memory serves me, to have a CHIP program. Miles, uh, just to stop you for a second. Sure. What's, what's CHIP? Because oh, I'm sorry. our podsters might not know. Okay. Uh, I think it's a microchip. It, even better than that. It was the Children's Health Insurance Program. And it was, an, it was a notion to increase the availability of health insurance for kids. I don't remember the income limits, but substantially higher than the Medicaid program in those days. And that program continues. I mean, it's now almost 30 years mm -hmm. later and that program still goes on. Yes. On the House side, Representative Kukovic championed the bill. And on the Senate side, Senator Allison Schwartz, a Philadelphia senator, championed it, and many others, including, of course, Senator Jones and, and the aforementioned Hardy Williams and, and many others. In those days, and this will not sound like Pennsylvania politics of today or American politics of today, in those days, there was really an effort from time to time to try to do good and decent things for otherwise powerless people. It's, it's a forgotten art form and a forgotten value in America, but it existed very strongly then. And so the notion was, if there could not be universal health care, at least there could be health care for children. One of the ways that it was funded was an increase in the cigarette tax, a two cent increase in the cigarette tax that went to fund the CHIP, the Children's Health Insurance Program, uh, I hope not many of you remember what smoking was, but there was actually a time in America when people paid for things to light up, put in their mouths so these things could kill them. Uh, and we talk about now being a strange time. Yep. Well, go look at any old movie. <laughs> people are smoking all over the place. Yeah, you know, uh, Humphrey Bogart in Casablanca, that ain't licorice. Yeah. All right. So, uh, so it's 1991. These are the issues that are kicking around. Action Alliance comes to me and says, Massachusetts just passed a bill called the Mom Bill, the Medicare Overcharge Measure. And at that time, I was working for Senator Roxanne Jones. She was a member of the the Senate Public Health and Welfare Committee, the chair of that committee for the Democrats. Democrats were in the minority then and now, though for a little bit in between they weren't, um, was Hardy Williams. And so Senator Jones had me draft the bill. We called it the Medicare overcharge measure. Again, it was 1991. Health, health insurance was an enormous issue nationally, but certainly in Pennsylvania. And the first thing I remember is that the Republicans were so apoplectic about the name that the first amendment they did was to change the name. Yeah, because they were terrified at the thought, you know, of the headline in the local paper that said, you know, Senator Yutz votes against mom. You know, so the two bills we got going are one for senior citizens, one for kids. You know, they knew they had no shot, but but they would be damned if they would let it be called the mom bill. So they and I actually had to look this up because I had forgotten. I knew they changed it, in, but I couldn't remember what. So they called it the Pennsylvania Healthcare Providers Medicare Fee Control Act. <laughs> now, I've been trying to make an acronym out of that. The only one I can come up with is obscene. So I'm sure there's something else that you could call it. But, but 
you know, in Pennsylvania in those days, there were there were two kinds of creatures that no longer exist in America. One was pro-labor Republicans. They don't exist. Oh, and the other was moderate Republicans. They really don't exist. Yeah, but Pennsylvania was really the, I hate to use the word hotbed and Republican, but uh, it really was the center of where pro-labor Republicans, moderate Republicans controlled the Republican party. You know, there may have been Yahoo far right wingers in the Pennsylvania Senate. One I do remember, and we'll, maybe we'll get to her momentarily. Uh, but for the most part, that's not who controlled the Pennsylvania Senate. The, the head of it was a guy named Robert Jubilee, from a Western PA guy. Altoona, Blair County. Yeah, Blair maybe County. Johnstown area, that, you know, that general yeah. vicinity. Mm -hmm. You know, moderate conservative, but not crazy Yahoo like today. So it was possible to get things done, and they did. You know, Senator Jubilee was the sponsor of one of, one of Pennsylvania's leading job training bills for welfare recipients. That happened because of Senator Roxanne Jones. You know, she, she was not a rich woman. She, she was, had been a welfare recipient and then ran a not heavily funded advocacy group. But she understood that if she was gonna make a difference on behalf of poor people in Pennsylvania, she had to deal with the senators, both Republicans and Democrats, uh, on a human personal level. So she made it a point to pay for uh, a subscription to the lunch at the Pennsylvania Senate. They had really good food, but of course it was only for the senators. You know, the senators were typically there three times a week, you know, maybe 26 to 30 weeks a year, probably less now, but in those days it was 26 to 30 weeks a year. Niles, let me ask, did you say she had a pay for that lunch? Yes. Oh, amazing. Yes, I'm astounding. Uh, it it was wasn't a ton of money, but yes, they, the senators actually paid for their lunches. And, their own lunches. At least there in those days. Now, that means there are no more free lunches. Uh, that, that was, actually, that was probably the, the last time there wasn't a free lunch for a Pennsylvania senator, um, but there, there were not in those days. So again, you know, a, a good life lesson that I learned was, you know, politicians are like teenagers in that individually they can be charming and, and nice and helpful and wonderful. You get them together and they turn into monsters. So she understood that if she could meet with them one-on-one, -on -one, which she could do while having lunch with them, she could let them understand what it was that she cared about. You had the Senate Republican leader be the prime sponsor of a bill to give welfare recipients job training. Not going to happen in Pennsylvania today. That's for sure. Yeah, it, it did then. Hey, listeners, that concludes part one of our interview with Niall Shore. Stay tuned for part two, which will be loaded up shortly. Thank you for listening.